So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, for our visitors, as you've already heard, we're in a pastor's search. I'm one of the elders. My name's Preston. I'm preaching today. At least uh, increasing our desire for the next pastor to come, if nothing else. So um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Of course, as has already been said, the attention of the world is on Ukraine these days. Like many of you, uh, Karen and I have friends there. We're deeply concerned for them. We long to hear that they are alive and well. We've heard from some, but not all. And the refugees that we've encountered, they're even more desperate to hear that their loved ones back in their country are safe. And that becomes an increasing challenge. And we understand it. And I think that is how Paul felt for the Thessalonians. They had seen a great response, as we saw last week in, in Acts chapter 17. They saw a great response, and yet they were torn away from them before they felt ready. Jesus told a parable um, about what happens to good seed in four different kinds of soil. He talked about hard ground, he talked about rocky ground, he talked about thorny ground, and he talked about good, good er, soil, and he talked about good soil. But one of those, the rocky soil, receives the seed and it sprouts up quickly, but in the heat of the sun it withers because it has no root. And this is like people who receive the good news with joy, but when trials come, they turn away because they have no root. You've probably seen people like this. I know I have in the course of ministry. I think that was what was in Paul's mind even as he was thinking about the Thessalonians. He didn't want them to be a case study a living illustration of that parable. So he sent Timothy to check on them. We learn in chapter 3 that Timothy had come from Thessalonica, brought news to Paul in Corinth. I won't confuse you with the whole traveling back and forth this week. I'll try not to. I'll confuse you on other things, but not that. Um, he brought news to Paul, who was in Corinth by this time, that the church was doing well despite the sufferings. Paul is overjoyed, and he wrote this letter in part to express his joy over this, to commend them, to help them have what they need to press on and to be firmly established. So in his opening verses, he gives us a lot to think about in terms of what it means for us as people to be in Christ, but also for a church to be in Christ. So let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So, first thing I'd like us to see is that the church that is in Christ, as a person in Christ, it is built on apostolic ministry. I'll explain what I mean. Paul begins this letter like he does most letters, like most letters, in fact, of that time were, were begun with the, right, the author saying his name, the recipient's name, and then some good wish for health, something like that. Um, this is a fairly standard form, but it is full of meaning for us, so we'll take a closer look at that. So we see that it opens with the sender, that's typical Paul, Silas, and Timothy. It's no coincidence that the three of them identified as senders were also the three who had been in Thessalonica. This likely encouraged the church greatly because the, these were the same three men they had known, they had met, who had brought the gospel to them. So I think that was a help to them. And it's not unreasonable to think that there was a lot of prayer and discussion among Paul and Silas and Timothy about what do we say? How do we respond to the news that Timothy has brought us? How, how do we help this church have what they need to press on? It wasn't just 
Paul getting a download from heaven. They were talking about real situations in Thessalonica in that church, real challenges that the church was facing. So we have these three, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. You know Paul's story, right? As Saul, he was a persecutor of the church. Then he encountered the risen Lord Jesus, the road to Damascus, and Jesus commissioned him as the apostle to the nations. Silas, you may not know as much about, his formal name is Silvanus. Uh, he's first mentioned at the council in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. He's, he and his brother were commissioned by the Jerusalem church to take the decisions of that council to the Gentile churches. So Silas already had a good bit of exposure to cross-cultural churches, to the gospel flourishing in, among Gentile churches and Gentile peoples. So when Paul decided to take his second journey and he and Barnabas had separated, he added Silas to his team and that was evidently a good move. They uh, added Timothy to the team early in the second century they, while they were in Lystra. Timothy was one of Paul's closest associates serving along him, as Paul would say, like a, a child with his father in the gospel. So these three form the band that, that together send this letter to the Thessalonian church. So we see that this church benefited from, first from apostolic teaching, right? We saw this last week when Paul went, he, it says he explained to them from the scriptures that the Messiah must suffer and that Jesus is that Messiah. And Paul was uniquely um, commissioned as an apostle, as an instrument of God's revelation in this new covenant age of one who would be authorized to write on behalf of Jesus to speak in his name. So the church there benefited first from apostolic teaching. This letter is apostolic teaching, okay? So there is that. They also benefited from his apostolic concern. If you've read the letter, you've seen that Paul was so concerned about how they are doing. We don't have news from them. They're suffering. We know there's persecution. How, how will they do this? Will they be like the, the, the seed that, that encounters the rocky soil or will, or will there be uh, lasting fruit? So there's that concern that motivated him to send Timothy to see with his own eyes, how are they doing? What fr fruit of the gospel do you see? How are they managing with the persecution? Are they standing firm? And they also benefited from apostolic prayers. We see this in verse 2 where Paul says, We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. So let's just notice a couple of things about Paul's prayers for them. They were shared, right? He didn't say, I'm praying for you as if I'm the only one God hears. But we, Paul, Silas, Timothy, if there was anyone else around, they were a part of this too, right? We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. So they were shared. That was a burden they could share with each other. None of them was in this alone. Their prayers were frequent. He says, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. Now this, you know, we, we logically understand, you know, Paul might stop praying to, to eat, <laughs> to sleep. So you understand what always and continually means. It means of course, frequent every time he thought about it. For one thing, because it was on his mind. I've discovered this, especially as a parent. As, I mean, I have my prayer routine, but then if there are things with our kids, things with family, those things are always on my mind. And I'm always praying about those things. Even though I'm not always praying about it, it's never far from my, my consciousness. Uh, so I think that's something similar too. Uh, so Paul and his, his team, they were praying frequently, always, constantly, consistently for them. And his prayers were soaked with gratitude. See, gratitude is good. It helps us keep our prayers from being just sort of thinking about 
God while we're worrying, you know? That's typically, that's, that's what we typically do with prayer. It's like we, we worry, but we know we really shouldn't worry. So we'll think about God while we worry, and we'll call that prayer. Well, gratitude helps us get past that to focus on the goodness and the sovereignty of God and to acknowledge he has a purpose in the things that we suffer. And so I think that is why Paul's prayers were soaked with gratitude. So as with the Thessalonian church, a church, any church in Christ, this church, any other, must be founded on and must continue in apostolic teaching. Now, we see this in Acts chapter 2. Uh, in the Jerusalem church, it says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Well, the apostles aren't living among us right now, but we do have the New Testament, and that is how a church follows apostolic teaching in this day. We have the New Testament. That is the body of apostolic testimony to who Jesus is and how we should follow him. So there's a second thing to see uh, in, in these verses, and that is that a, a church that is in Christ draws its life from its relationship with God. So again, we read this in verse 1. This letter is to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Church is the general word for any gathering, any assembly, gathered for any reason. It could be a municipal group, it could be a club, it could be anything. So we need the additional words to understand what kind of gathering this is. And the church, in this sense, it is God's people, it is Christ's people gathered, gathered for worship. And that reminds us that our primary purpose as we gather, it is not to do something for God, it is not to impress God, it is to focus on Him, it is to exalt Him, and to do this together. Okay, we're not in this alone, and that's the beauty of being able to gather. As we've been through COVID and unable to gather, it has been so nice to be able to gather and to sing together. I have, you know, I look forward to the days when we uh, let go of the masks, uh, although it has been suggested that I should perhaps keep the mask on during the singing um, post restrictions. So I can't imagine why anybody would say that unless they were sitting in front of me. So at any rate, um, church is people of Christ gathered to focus on him. Um, it's remarkable that he calls them a church because it generally takes time for a group of people to come under the gospel, to be converted, to be gathered, committed to one another and call them and understand that they are a church. They are in covenant relationship with each other. Paul was there three Sabbaths, maybe a little longer. It's not quite clear, but that is remarkable that they would already be at this stage of their development as a church. They are a group of believers in Christ that had not only come to faith, but they were in this covenant relationship with each other. They knew who was in and who wasn't. They are perfect, as we see from the rest of the letters. They weren't healthy in every way. But they were a church. Notice also he says that it is the church of the Thessalonians. Now it's not the church of the Thessalonians as if they owned it, but it was theirs because they belonged to it. So it was a church. It wasn't a synagogue, though it started in a synagogue. That was the first point of contact, but it was separate from the synagogue. It was a church of Christ. It was Jesus' people gathering together. And it was multi-ethnic from the beginning, right? And then, as the church of the Thessalonians, it was not an institution or a building, it was people. It was these people, people like Jason and Aristarchus and, and others that, that we meet later in Paul's journeys, who came out of this church, part of this church. This is real people with real stories, with real pain and suffering, and that, that's who this church is. 
But notice also, it is the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. The in applies to both, right? So if Paul had said of, we would understand that he's saying, this is a church that belongs to God the Father, it belongs to Jesus. And that's, that's correct, there's nothing wrong with that. But when he says in, it points us to something else, to the profound relationship that exists between God and his people, between Christ and the church. Because a church is not primarily an organization that does things for God. It is a gathering of people who participate in the life of God. This is, this is not just an organization. It is, it is why the, the body metaphors that Paul uses are so important. It's, there is a life. And he says in Ephesians 4, there is, there is uh, one body and one spirit. And I think he puts those together, right? Because it is the spirit that gives life to the body. And so we are a living fellowship. We are related to God, and it is, it is life, it is, it is unique. We are not like other organizations that gather around the city. We are in a relationship with Christ. But let's notice the, the highly relational way that Paul describes God in this verse. He's, first, he's called a father. This is the most common way that Jesus referred to God. You're only a father if you have children, right? Um, and God, God is our father. Now, maybe it's difficult for you to think of God like that. Maybe your earthly father was or is so deeply flawed that it's very difficult for you to make that, that connection. And if that is you, just know that God is everything that you instinctively know a father should be. Whether your earthly father was like that or not, God is that. Um, I understand it's, it is difficult. It was difficult for me in coming to Christ. My dad was a good man, but he died when I was young, and I had to work through some stuff just in being comfortable calling God my father. But second, Paul says that each of us, and we as a church, are in God the Father and in Christ. Now this points out to something about God, about him being relational. You see, this one God has existed forever in a relationship with the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit isn't mentioned in verse 1. He's have to wait till verse 4, but just understand He's never far away. Okay? And often if the Spirit isn't mentioned, it is because his primary work is, is pushing Christ to the front and exalting Christ. And so you don't need to feel sorry for the Holy Spirit if he doesn't get mentioned. Okay? But the idea here, the, the three of these are in this relationship, this one God existing as Father and Son and Holy Spirit in this relationship of life and love and joy and glory. And we are brought into this to see it, to enjoy it, and to join in. It is breathtaking, <laughs> right? Jesus doesn't draw us to himself because he's lonely, okay? He doesn't need us. It is the overflow of his relationship. God didn't create people because he was lonely. It is the overflow of this relationship among Father and Son and Holy Spirit. As Michael Reeves said, Wonderful book called Delighting in the Trinity. He says, the truth is that God is love because God is a trinity. For it is only when you grasp what it means for God to be a trinity that you really sense the beauty, the overflowing kindness, and the heart-grabbing loveliness of God. See, if God is not a trinity, he cannot be love. I mean, scripture tells us God is love. We like to hear that, right? If God is not a trinity, he cannot be love because if there was ever a point at which God existed and like the Father and there was no Son, no Spirit, he has no one to love. He can only love himself. 
He cannot be a father who creates children. He could be a ruler who creates slaves. But he cannot be a father who creates children. And this kind of God does not awaken love or delight in us. So this is who we are. This people of this God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We belong to him. This is, this is our identity. Jesus speaks of this kind of relationship in John chapter 14. He says, on that day, and this, he's talking about the time when the Spirit would come and internalize everything that has been going on before that time. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. That's astounding. <laughs> we are in Christ. Christ is in us. We are in the Father. The Father in us. It, it is amazing, right? We, we don't just sign up to do things for God. He has come, and there is a new life that is, that is taking up residence in us. And this is the relationship that, that we are drawn into. So the church is, is, this is our identity. You can lose your possessions and your job and your house and your health, your loved ones, your freedom. We can lose even our life. But once you are in Christ, united to him by faith, no one can ever take that from you. Amen. Right? You can lose everything. But as Jesus said, no one can snatch them out of my hand. He says, I know my own, my own know me, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one is able to snatch them out of my hand. And even when he says they shall never perish, he's, he's saying not only can no one else cause them to perish, they can't cause themselves to perish. You are totally secure in the love of God and in that union with Christ. But this phrase in Christ also speaks of our intimacy with the Father. Being in God the Father, it means more than belonging to or serving or following because we know Him. You know God. That's, that's astounding, right? <laughs> that we as fallen, rebellious creatures once dead in sin could say, I know God. That is, it is incredible. It really is. So we are identified with him. We are growing in intimacy with him. We see in, also in, in verse 1, as Paul is talking about this, we see his greeting. It's, it's, um, he, says it's grace. he says, grace and peace to you. So grace, these are familiar terms, but grace is God's unmerited favor. He has bestowed abundantly on us in Christ. Not just when we first came to Christ and forgiveness, but Day by day, a sufficiency of grace that enables us to follow and obey. He gives us grace. And this is not purposeless because Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 7, he gives us grace, the grace that he gave us to bring us from death and sin to life in Christ. He says he does this in order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Is that not astounding? Like, why is God so nice to us? Why is he so gracious to us? Is it so we'll be nice to him? No, it is so that he can show us more grace and more kindness after death, after resurrection, in the ages to come, whatever that means. And what do we find? We find his incomparable grace and kindness toward us in Christ. That is Astounding. This is, 
This is what awaits us, age upon age of kindness from our God and Father. It is astounding. It is. If, if, if you think you'll be bored in heaven, I just urge you to meditate on this, okay? It's like, in heaven, you know, no football, no, uh, you know, no, uh, no chess, no, what do we do all the day? We just sit on clouds playing harps? Not at all. You know, we, uh, I think nobody sits on a cloud, okay? So that's not going to work. I mean, I know it'll be different, but, okay, I'm sorry, I didn't, there's a reason I decided not to say stuff like that. So I'm going to move on. <laughs> so God shows us grace in order to show us more grace. You've met people like this who are, who are incredibly generous, who just find joy in giving. I've met, well, I've met a couple of people like that. Um, you know, not expecting anything in return. It is astounding. That is, that is what God intends for us in the ages to come. And I find things like that nurturing my, my own hope in, in difficult times. Then he also expresses this desire for them to have peace. I know he wrote this in Greek, but behind this, I believe, is the Hebrew word shalom. And it is far more than an absence of conflict. It is this idea of, of wellness, of prosperity, of fulfillment, of wholeness. It is an all-encompassing term. And that is something that, that comes to all of us in Christ in measure and in its fullness later, again, in an age to come. So the church is in Christ. We are in Christ, but we are in Christ together. Then the third thing is that the church is in Christ is marked by faith, love, and hope. I mentioned Paul's prayer a few minutes ago, and in verse 3, then he gets more specific. He says, we remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So he expresses gratitude to God because despite what the Thessalonians have suffered, they're, they're doing well. They have stood firm. They are not just surviving. They are thriving. They have become stronger. It's, uh, he's just overjoyed, and that's, that's part of why he writes. So he mentions three things that were evidence of God's continuing gracious work in them, and those are faith, love, and hope. These are indicators to us of how being in Christ is reflected in our lives and in the life of the church. Now, they, these are familiar to us if you're 1 Corinthians 13 is familiar to most of us. It appears there and several other places in Scripture. But we need to understand that faith, hope, and love don't begin when you come to Christ. Okay? We are wired for faith, hope, and love. Okay? We exercise faith, hope, and love in some way from the earliest moment. An infant learns to trust even as he receives nourishment from his mother. And as a child, he learns to love as he sees it in his family, and he learns to hope with every need met and every good outcome. Those faculties are present. They are a part of our lives, right? But these are not confined to children, even as adults. We cannot not exercise faith, hope, and love. We trust, which is the verbal counterpart of the noun, faith. We trust our spouses. We trust friends. You showed up here around 1030-ish, because you trusted we would start, <laughs> there would be people here and we would start worship. We trust our neighbors that they don't want to do us harm in most cases. We trust other drivers to obey the rules of traffic, depending on what country you're in. Or sometimes the rule is there is no rule. 
We learned, we lived, you know, we lived in Romania before we were here, and the rules of driving are very different. Well, on paper, I think they're the same, but in reality, they're quite different. So we trust other drivers to obey the culturally contextualized rules of traffic. Uh, we trust our employers to pay us. Again, but as our Romanians read under communism, our Romanian friends said under communism, we pretend to work and they pretend to pay us. So, you know, I think now we trust our employers to pay us. So you and I exercise trust many times daily okay, in a lot of different ways at a lot of different levels. And we love, right? This takes a lot of different forms. Maybe it's the deep affection between friends and family, the life commitment of a husband and wife, the sacrificial devotion shown to an aging parent or disabled family member. And we hope, right? We make our life choices based on expected outcomes that we think will bring us life and satisfaction and fullness, shalom, right? So you might work hard to make money thinking it will satisfy you or be obsessed with appearance because you think if you were just more beautiful, you'd be loved. Or put your hope in a perfect relationship because the prospect of loneliness is, is crushing. And you put your hope in these things. You cannot not hope, okay? Everything you do is based on, on some hope you have. And this is where our problem lies, because apart from the grace of God, our faith, our hope, and our love are twisted, and they are turned in on us. You see, we trust ourselves. We trust our own wisdom, right? We talked about this a lot in our, our exploration of Proverbs. That's this, the huge choice between trusting our own wisdom or God's wisdom. We trust our own efforts. I've literally had someone say, as we talked about life and death and judgment, I'm confident to stand before God on my own record. I thought, okay, well, with what I know about you, that is misplaced. I didn't say that, but, I, well, I'm probably, I might have. I tried. I know that. And he has since learned that. So we trust our own efforts. We love ourselves. You see, we're radically committed to our own happiness. That's why Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. He's not saying you need to love yourself. He knows we already love ourselves. We are committed to our own happiness. We are going to do what makes us happy. Desire is a huge part of our motivation. What he's saying is be as radically committed to the welfare of others as you are to your own. And we put our hope in whatever we think will manage or escape or forget our brokenness. So, we all exercise faith, hope, and love, but they're all naturally, they are turned inward and on ourselves. But in Christ, these, these qualities, these characteristics, they are redirected, they're transformed, they're developed. So true faith looks up, right? It looks away from ourselves to Jesus, the one that we trust, the one who died, rose again, he lived a perfect life, suffered the worst injustice, overcame death itself, he is the one who is faithful to all his promises, and he never abandons anyone who trusts in him. So true faith looks up, true love looks around, because being, embracing the love of Christ, being satisfied and content in his love, we look away from ourselves around to others and are able to meet their needs, seek their welfare, not because we need something or because we are demanding, but because Christ has loved us. And because like our Trinitarian God, it overflows from a full heart. And true hope, so if true faith looks up and true love looks around, true hope looks forward. 
We look away from ourselves to all that God has promised us in Christ, to a future in which we are raised from death to life on a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no more hostility, no more war, no more corruption, no more poverty, no more injustice, no more anxiety or confusion, no more disease or disability, and there will be no more death. That's our hope. And this is a certain hope because Jesus himself has overcome death and he's promised us this at the cost of his own life. So these things can nourish our hope. So faith, love, and hope show up in our lives in different ways. Paul stresses in the Thessalonians how the fruit of faith, hope, and love looked in, in them. It says their faith-inspired work. So this is a general term. Sometimes in the plural it's translated deeds or actions. Because the Thessalonians had trusted in Christ, they did different things, and they did things differently, right? That's how it works with us. Because when you trust Christ, there are some things you do because you trust him. And there are some things you avoid because you trust him, and it is better to not do certain things. And then anything you continue to do that you did before, you do differently, from, at least from different motives, maybe better, whatever, because of Christ. His, his love and goodness motivates us, right? Their love inspired labor. Now, the word labor is a little different from the word work. It has the idea of something that's more strenuous, uh, hard labor, so to speak. Um, knowing the love of Christ inspires us and enables us to do the difficult things, to, to love in difficult relationships, to show love in practical ways in the midst of hard and painful situations, like the persecution that the Thessalonians were suffering. God's, their love showed up in them, somehow able to show kindness even to their persecutors. And then he says their hope inspired endurance. So hope is future-oriented, as I said a moment ago. It enables us to look beyond our present trials, to know that there is a future ahead of us that is so glorious, so satisfying, so delightful, that it will make all of this pain and suffering and, and nonsense worth it. So we can, we can look ahead, we can nourish our hope on the promises of God. So for a suffering church, their, their faith, love, and hope helped them to stay rooted in the gospel and to have what they needed to encourage one another through that painful season. That's good because life still has painful seasons. Our lives, your life, we, we have painful seasons, and we need each other. We need to remind each other, I need you, you need me. We need to encourage one another, help each other, press on, move forward, and keep, keep our hope looking ahead to that day when all will be well. So you're sitting here today watching online and you think, well, yeah, I would really love to, to you know, upgrade my faith, hope, and love. Is there a way to do that? Well, Scripture tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So you need to constantly expose yourself to the Word of God. Expose the Word of God to your heart and mind Hear it, read it, memorize it, meditate, it on, meditate on it. Do you want to love more? Do you want an upgrade in the love department? Well, Jesus says, the one who is forgiven much, loves much. So meditate on the love of Christ. If that seems difficult, meditate on your sin. You say, well, that's an odd counsel to give. Well, we're not meant to be consumed by guilt, but as you think of your sin, let it move you to grace. Realize this is... I am forgiven of these things. It is like the hymn, it is well with my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. Well, 
you know, that's got to be one of the oddest lines in the hymn ever, right? No, sin is not a, a glorious thought that brings bliss. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. That's where the bliss comes from. So when you are confronted with your sin and, and the enemy will want to overwhelm you with your sin and your guilt and make you feel as if you are beyond hope and you just say, yep, that's probably all true, but thank God. <laughs> Jesus has paid the price for all of it and he has overcome and I will too. So meditate on the love of Christ because love begets love. Love inspires love. You want to strengthen your hope? Meditate on his promises. Let his promises nourish your vision for the future. So I said a moment ago, we all exercise faith, hope, and love. That naturally is misdirected apart from the gospel. The good news is there is someone who is worthy of your faith, worthy of your love, worthy of your hope. His name is Jesus. At the cost of his own life, he provided for forgiveness, for transformation of your faith, love, and hope. And if you will abandon your faith, hope, and love in yourself and focus those things on him, he will forgive you. He will reconcile you to God. He will transform you and redirect those desires, those qualities in you, and he will give you a hope that no one can take away from you, even in death. So as we transition to communion today, that's, that is what it pictures, because it pictures the broken body and blood of our Lord, the gospel. The gospel is what keeps us rooted, keeps our faith, hope, and love focused on Christ. So that is why we do this. It is why we do it regularly, because he commanded it. So we'll uh, observe that in just a moment. Let me pray. Father, thank you. We thank you that you are who you are. As we sang earlier, you are a good, good father. We thank you that you created us and redeemed us because you are love. We thank you for redirecting our faith, hope, and love to Christ. I pray for my friends here today that wherever the, the struggle is in those areas that you will just draw near to them, nourish their faith by your word, nourish their love by the gospel, nourish their hope by your promises. And even as we observe communion as you commanded, uh, I pray that you will refocus our faith, hope, and love on you. Please, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.